So today we are continuing our sermon series called Modern Questions and Ancient Answers. And we're asking some of the questions that we think society and culture may be asking today. And in order to ask those questions and to look at the answers that the Lord may have for us, we're looking at the story of Joseph and we're asking ourselves, are the biggest questions that we ask, are the answers to those questions found in the scriptures? In case you weren't here last week or in case you're totally new to church and wondering, what is this story about Joseph that they're going to be talking about? Joseph is an amazing story of a young man who is set apart by God to do great things. But his life is by no means straightforward at all. He was incredibly headstrong. He was arrogant. Some may even say that he was a narcissist. He was abused. His brothers tried to kill him. He was lied about. He was falsely imprisoned. And yet, despite all of that, he somehow ended up as prime minister of the most powerful nation on earth. And in the end, he was reconciled with his brothers in the most beautiful way and actually ended up saving not just his own nation, but another nation as well. It is actually quite a story. Now, last week, we looked at the first bit of Joseph's life and the dream that he had. Do you remember where um, Joseph's dad, Jacob, gives him this amazing coat? And Joseph has all of these strange dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. And as we went through that bit of the story last week, we learned that as people, this was um, catch up on this talk if you missed it, because the talk was fantastic. We learned that as God's people, we have a collective purpose as God's people, which is to worship God and grow the garden. And as part of God's collective people, uh, uh, having a collective purpose, we also have an individual specific purpose. We're called to play our little bit in growing the garden and worshipping God. And for some of us, that might be in education. For some of us, it might be in youth work. For some of us, it's in healthcare. It could be a whole load of different things. But basically, our call is to follow God's call on our life as we worship Him and grow the garden. In other words, the well-known lyrics from the Andrew Lloyd Webber song, Any Dream Will Do, is actually theologically incorrect. Any dream will not do. The only dream that will actually do is God's sovereign plan and will for our life. Now, I love the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. It is fantastic. But that particular song is not right. What we want to do is fall in line with the will of God, that we would worship him and grow the garden. His dreams for our life will do, but nothing else. Now, today we are looking at what happened when Joseph was effectively cancelled by his brothers. They'd had enough of his behaviour, they'd had enough of his arrogance, and so they cancelled him. Now, cancel culture has become a huge part of culture and society recently. And so we're going to be asking the question, is getting cancelled the end? Now, before I read the passage, I just want to give a few trigger warnings this morning. Um, the passage that I'm about to read is a true story about Joseph, and it is not an easy read. We hear of Joseph's own brothers, his family, plotting against him. We're going to hear a story about abuse happening within a family context. Um, we're going to hear about brothers planning to sell 
their, one of their younger brothers as a slave. We're going to hear them make up lies about his brother to his father. We're going to hear about family dysfunction, broken relationships, and hatred in families, all contained within just a few short verses. So before I read the scriptures to us this morning, I just want to say if any of this rings home for you, perhaps you've suffered abuse in a family context, um, or there's particular difficult relationships that you have with parents or with siblings or whatever it might be, then please, please um, come and chat to either myself or grab somebody at the end and chat to them. Come forward for prayer ministry. And we would love to pray for you before you leave if any of the stuff that I talk about does trigger something in you today. So let's turn to the passage. It's Genesis 37, and we're going to be reading from verse 12 onwards. Genesis 37, verse 12 onwards. We've just, we're picking up just after Joseph has had the dreams about his brothers bowing down to him. So Genesis 37, starting at verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? Joseph replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the system and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, 
one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at two um, things in particular this morning. We're going to look at the cancelling of Joseph, and then we're going to look at how God is going to use Joseph to bring about his salvation plan. Basically, being cancelled is not the end. Let's first look at the cancelling of Joseph. The family history of Jacob and Joseph is very interesting. We were told in the Bible last week that um, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why is it that a a father loves one of his sons more than any of the others? And why is it that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons? Well, Jacob grew up lacking any, any sort of real affirmation or love from his father. His father, Isaac, preferred Esau to him. And for those of you know, that know the story of Esau and Jacob, Jacob, um, Jacob got the birthright that should have belonged to Esau in that particular culture, and it caused a huge family rift. And um, for Jacob, this meant that he began to look for affirmation in other people because he wasn't receiving it from his father. Now, Jacob had children to a number of different women, but the woman that he loved the most was a woman called Rachel. And as you read the story of Jacob, you get this sense that he thinks if he can just have Rachel, then everything will be okay. Um, Jacob's two youngest sons were born to Rachel. They were Joseph and Benjamin. But she gave, and when she was giving birth to Benjamin, who was the youngest, she sadly died. And it meant that Jacob, having fixed all of his hopes and longings and desires on Rachel, transferred all of that onto the oldest of her two children, which was Joseph. And so all of his attention goes there. That's why he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. It's why he treated Joseph differently to any of his other children. He bought Joseph lavish gifts. He lavished more affirmation on Joseph. He loved him more than the others. You actually see this even in the first few verses of of the verses 12 and 13 that I read to us just now. All of the other brothers are out doing manual labour, looking after the sheep. Where's Joseph? At home with his father. Joseph became an idol in Jacob's life. He needed Joseph in order to have love and joy and security and happiness. He became the source of Jacob's love and joy. Now, the results of this were devastating for Joseph. In our reading last week, we saw, didn't we, that Joseph would sometimes say bad things about his brothers to his father. He made stuff up just in order to win more affirmation from his father. Um, His brothers saw that Joseph was loved more than any of them. And so we're told by the author of Genesis that they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph's own view of himself was so blown up that he was having dreams that his brothers would bow down to him. And he was one of those annoying brothers that um, he told the, don't know if you remember this, when Brogan was reading the passage to us last week, Joseph told his brothers about one dream where they all bowed down to him and they hated him for it. So what did he do? Oh, he had another dream about it. And instead of keeping it to himself, he rubbed it in even more. And this time it wasn't just sheaves of corn that were bowing down to Joseph. It was his brother's stars that were bowing down to him. I mean, how grandiose can you get? It's kind of narcissistic behavior, isn't it? 
It looks cruel. It looks arrogant. And even Jacob had to calm Joseph down. Now we're told multiple times in Genesis 37 that Joseph is hated by his brothers. Now, if you think your family is dysfunctional, have a look at this one. This is a whole other level of family and relational dysfunction. Now, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that Joseph's brothers do end up bowing down before him. In a rather beautiful way, God did use Joseph to rescue not only his own people, but a whole other nation. Joseph's story is remarkable and God ends up, God ends up refining Joseph's character and building his character in the most extraordinary ways. And Joseph is actually held up by many as a hero of the faith. When I was doing some reading around this passage um, in the week, the late, great Tim Keller um, commented on this passage that, you know, we often think of Joseph as a hero of the faith. Um, but even in Joseph's family background, even in his family's dysfunction, do we get a picture of the gospel? How? Because God uses a deeply flawed family and a deeply flawed man, somebody who had his own character quirks, but was also abused by his brothers. He used this man to bring about his, God used Joseph to bring about his kingdom purposes. He takes Joseph from where he was through near-death experience and into palace life. He didn't deserve it. He couldn't earn it. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel that God can take us and redeem us and use him for his glory. And isn't that true of all of the heroes of the faith? It's not like you read the Bible and look at the people that God uses and thinks, well, they're amazing examples of moral behaviour and of how to perfectly serve Jesus and follow him. David was an adulterer. Noah was a drunk. Abraham lacked any faith at all. And yet God uses all of these people to do the most extraordinary things. And this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is not primarily a book about how to live your life. It's not a book that forces us into, religious, into, into religion and just tick boxing things in order to please God. I mean, instead of the Bible being a book about how to live your life, it's a book that points to Jesus who lived life perfectly for us and died the death that we should have died so that we could be free. Anyway, back to these verses. Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they took an opportunity when he was away from, when he was away from his father um, to kill him. Joseph's brothers wanted him cancelled. They didn't like his behaviour. They didn't like his worldview about himself. And instead of just challenging his behaviour, in this instance, they wanted rid of him altogether. And so instead of cancelling what they saw as a bad worldview or challenging and cancelling sin, they wanted Joseph cancelled as well, his very life. Now, it's pretty easy to read this story and think that the behaviour of the brothers is absolutely abhorrent. And it is. I could never countenance plotting to kill somebody in, in this way. It's very easy to read the story and think, well, this is completely abhorrent behaviour. Who are these people? But isn't this the way that culture behaves all of the time? 
in the last few years, we've, we've got used to something called cancel culture, where people, if they say the wrong thing or they've behaved in a wrong way, instead of certain behaviours just being cancelled, people are cancelled altogether. Take J.K. Rowling. She's a good example because she's been cancelled by the political right and the political left in the last few decades. So she was cancelled by the religious right in the States for writing a book on an imaginary wizarding wizarding world, um, and she was hated and cancelled by one particular aspect of society. In the last couple of years, two or three years, she's been cancelled by people on the political left as she um, has made her views on the whole transgender discussion well-known. Now, instead of people having a sensible debate about the views, what's happened is people end up just distancing themselves from J.K. Rowling altogether and pretending like she doesn't even exist. The number of people that just tweet farewell J.K. Rowling just because she's said something that they may, or written something that they may disagree with. It also happens in the church. It happens to Christians. You may say something in your workplace or refuse to wear a particular symbol or whatever it might be, and you may be cancelled by colleagues. As a culture, we, we love this cancel culture. We love to cancel people for what they have done. Now, I want to say that at its heart, there's some positive things about cancel culture. There's also some very twisted things. But at its heart, I think what it shows us, this culture that's, that's um, pervading us at the minute, is that there's a deep desire for truth and justice. If we perceive something as unjust, we want it dealt with. We want the truth to prevail. But on the other hand, cancel culture is often driven by anger and hatred. And it's simply a way to silence those around us who we disagree with. And it's often based on our, on our very narrow worldview, often an echo chamber that exists in our particular social media feeds or our particular um, socioeconomic dynamics or whatever it might be. The problem with this is, well, what if our version of truth is wrong? What if our view of reality is wrong? And we're cancelling people for no reason at all. Instead of just challenging behaviour, we're actually destroying people. Robert Martin, Robert Martin, writing for the Gospel Coalition, wrote this. Cancel culture seeks to destroy sin, but in the process, it destroys people. Well, what if there is an ancient answer to the modern question about cancel culture? Cancel culture may be a modern term, but it is actually nothing new. Think about the day of the crucifixion. On the day that Jesus died... A whole mob, an angry mob of people, you can imagine it taking place on social media, an angry mob of people are calling for Jesus to be crucified. And the crowds are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They don't have the power to do it. And so what do they do? They end up taking him to Pilate. Pilate can find no fault in him at all, but he has a deep desire for the truth. And so he says to Jesus, what is truth? And in the end, Pilate gets taken in by the mob of the crowd and just gives in and Jesus is effectively cancelled or they think he's cancelled on that day. We all have a little bit of cancel culture within us. All of us, I suspect, have given into it at times. We cancel friends when they disagree with us. Some of us may have cancelled family members. 
Some of us may have cancelled parents or grandparents. Some of us may have cancelled work colleagues. Some of us may have cancelled somebody for something that they said about us on a night out or on social media. We all give in to this sometimes. And on the other side of the coin, perhaps you recognise yourself not just in the brothers as we read this story, but perhaps you recognise yourself in Joseph. Perhaps you've been the victim of a group of people cancelling you. Perhaps you've been the victim of family hatred, or perhaps you've been the victim of people making stuff up about you and lying about you. If that is the case, then know this, that your story in either being cancelled or you cancelling others, whatever it is that you see yourself in this morning, your story does not end there. What if the ancient answer to the modern, the modern question about cancel culture, what if the answer is the cross? And what if we even see this in the story of Joseph? Because, because it is there, the whole story of Joseph is cross shaped and what if getting cancelled is not the end because of the cross which leads me on to my second point which is God's salvation plan the reason that Joseph getting cancelled was not the end is because God was in control and God was working out his salvation plan how so well again reading around the passage this week and particularly reading it several times on over on Friday As I was reading it, I began to wonder and marvel again just at God's sovereignty and God's grace and God's sovereign plan in Joseph's life and how it all points to the cross. So let me just point out a few things that look like coincidences, but were really God orchestrating the salvation, not just of Joseph, but of his family and not just of his family, but of Egypt and not just of Egypt, but the whole world. So look at verse 12. Joseph's brothers were grazing their flocks in Shechem. And Jacob wants to send Joseph to them. Again, notice how Joseph is kept behind as the favourite son while all the others are off doing the manual labour in the fields. So Joseph sets out to Shechem and it is not a short journey away at all. And Shechem was basically in the middle of nowhere. So to go from the family home to Shechem would have taken a long time. It was in the middle of nowhere. And when Joseph gets there, they are, his brothers are no longer there. It's a very remote place. But then out of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, a man is wandering around the fields. And in what looks like a huge coincidence, he comes up to Joseph and says, what are you looking for? And Joseph tells him, well, I'm looking for my brothers. And then this man just happened to be wandering the fields in a very remote place and just happened to overhear a conversation that a group of brothers were having about the fact that they weren't going to stay in Shechem, but they were going to go to an even more remote place called Dothan. All of this looks like wild coincidence, doesn't it? So this man just happens to be in the right place. Joseph just happens to be at the right place. And Joseph somehow, through this complete stranger who's overheard a random conversation, knows that his brothers are in Dothan. And so this stranger passes this information on to Joseph and he heads towards Dothan. And when he gets there, we read that his brothers are plotting to kill him because they can see him coming in the distance on the horizon. And just as they're plotting to kill him, in this very remote place, in the middle of nowhere, just at that time, a group of Ishmaelites just happened to be passing by. 
just, just at that time. And so Joseph ends up not being killed or left in a cistern to rot, but he ends up being sold into slavery. Now, if these things, if any of those things had not happened, not just, it wouldn't have just ended up with Joseph's death, it would have ended up with the death of everybody. Why? Well, spoiler alert, um, for those of you that don't know the story, in just a few weeks' time, we're going to see how Joseph saved, when he became prime minister of Egypt, how Joseph saved his whole people and the whole people of Egypt from starvation. Had any of those one things not happened, Joseph would not have ended up where he was. There were no coincidences in this story at all. God was in control. God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives. Now, do you know that in Genesis 37, God isn't mentioned at all in this chapter. It's one of the few chapters of the Bible where you'll read it and think, where on earth is God in all of this? But as you start to look at the narrative and the details of what, of what was happening behind the scenes, you begin to see God's fingerprint over everything. God was arranging things. This is Tim Keller again. God was arranging things for the salvation of this family. Now, let this be an encouragement to you. God can use everything in your life for his good. God can use all things in your life for his good and for your good. God was sovereign even over the rather strange dreams that Joseph was happening, was having. How? Well, let's get beyond the rather narcissistic nature of Joseph's dreams. There was actually something of God in them. They were from God. How? Well, in that particular culture, what happened? The youngest always bowed down to the eldest. The children always bowed down to the parents. Younger siblings always bowed down to their older siblings. The eldest would always inherit everything of the family estate. Now, what is God saying to Joseph and the family through these dreams? Well, he's saying that God is going to use the small and the insignificant to shame the wise. God is not into religion, but into grace. He's into subverting the natural order of things to bring about his purposes. Isn't that what happened with Jesus? Jesus was born into an insignificant family in an insignificant nation and yet brought about the salvation of mankind. Now let's look at what happened to Joseph after um, his brothers had decided that they wanted rid of him. They stripped him of his clothes, they left him to rot in a pit and they sold him for pieces of silver. And yet God used him to bring about the salvation of an entire group of people. Who does this remind you of? Who else was stripped publicly, humiliated and left to rot in a pit? Who else was sold for pieces of silver? Jesus was. Only because Joseph was mocked, humiliated and rejected was not only he saved, but his whole family. And only because Jesus was mocked, humiliated and rejected, it's only because of that that we could be saved, that you could be saved. Now, whatever happened to Joseph's coat? Have you ever wondered that? I wonder what happened to it after it went back to his father. 
Did he put a bit of vanish on it and try and restore it? I don't know. Joseph's coat was cancelled too. It was dipped in blood and it was used as evidence, alleged evidence of Joseph's death. Now, who else lost his, lost his clothes on the day that he died? Jesus. He was stripped naked and he was left hanging on a cross in nothing. Jesus lost his clothes, his robes of, actually his robes of glory, Philippians 2, so that we could be clothed in them. The more amazing thing is that Joseph didn't choose any of this stuff that happened to him on this particular day. Joseph didn't choose to have his brother's plot to kill him. Joseph didn't choose to be stripped and to be beaten and to be left to wild animals only to eventually be sold as a slave. But Jesus willingly went through it for me and for you. Jesus went through all of that. Jesus headed to the worst pit of them all, to death on a cross. And he did it to save you. You see, cancel culture in wanting to destroy sin also destroys people. But Jesus will never destroy you, but he will cancel your sin. He'll cancel your sin, but he won't destroy you. In fact, he was stripped of his robe of glory so that you could be clothed in it. Now we'll see in a few weeks time, again, most of you know the story, but we'll see in a few weeks time that Joseph had the opportunity to cancel his brothers when they came to him. Many years later, and he was prime minister of Egypt and they didn't even know that it was Joseph. They just assumed that he'd be dead or um, still a slave or something somewhere. And Joseph could have, chosen, could have chose to behave like his brothers. And instead he doesn't. He lavishes love on them. He forgives them and he offers reconciliation. Joseph has got it. Joseph eventually learns that you don't have to, dis to destroy people despite the stuff that they may have done wrong to you. In fact, you can see people set in right relationship and redeemed and restored. C.S. Lewis, this was on social media yesterday. C.S. Lewis said this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Now, where does this leave all of us? Well, I think that for some of us in here today, we recognise, even if your family dysfunction isn't the same as, isn't the same as, isn't on the same level as Joseph's, you recognise that there's some family dysfunction in your own family. You recognise that there's some relational dysfunction and it's, it's made you who you are today. And in some ways it's trapped you and it's holding you back from all that God has for you. Perhaps it may be that you realise that you have a sibling who was the family favourite and that you've always felt that there's something lacking in your life because you've not had the same affirmation um, as, as your siblings. Perhaps you recognise yourself in the dynamic between Jacob and and, um, and Joseph, even negatively or positively. As I was reading this, I was reflecting again that many of us are not the, we're not the, often the product of our own choices. 
the way that we're brought up and the people that we spend time with have a massive influence on who we are and they begin to shape our personalities and our giftings and our callings. And sometimes we run as far away as possible from the people that have hurt us, whether it be family or friends, and we try and be totally different to them. If that's the case, then we may feel like we're running from the dysfunction, but the dysfunction is still having a huge control over us. In other cases, we just adopt all of the family patterns and the relational mess that have existed in our families before. In, in that same way, dysfunction is still having a hold on us. It may be that as we read this story that you recognise that you've been cancelling people that have done some bad things to you. It may be that you recognise that you've, you've been hurt abused. People have spoken things over you that are just not right and not true. It, that does not have to be the end of your story. Perhaps you recognise yourself in, do you know it says four times in Genesis 37 that Joseph's brothers hated him. Perhaps you recognise that there's some hatred going on for you at the minute. Perhaps it's somebody, that, uh, somebody at work who the boss seems to prefer to you or somebody in your family, or whatever it might be. Perhaps there's hatred in your own life right now. Hatred does not have to be the end of your story. God can take what's in your life and redeem it and use it to bring about salvation even in the lives of the people that are closest to you. Perhaps you've seen today for the first time that we don't have to destroy and cancel people when they do something wrong. Instead, we can look to the cross where Jesus died for those that he was going to save despite all of the stuff that we'd done wrong so that we could be free and loved and accepted. We don't have to cancel people as we, as we sometimes rightly rail against their sin and their bad behaviour. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Now, I recognise that there's, the, the passage talks about many deep and it, it, is a, it is a very uncomfortable read. Um, but isn't that great that the Bible deals with real life and it doesn't, just skirt over, it doesn't just skirt over the issues? God brought about the most amazing healing in Joseph's life and in his brother's life and in Joseph's dad's life. And because of that, worked out healing in a whole nation, and ultimately in us. There is nothing that God can't redeem.